Chapter 14 of the Sunzu is entitled Attracting Men of Worth. And we have at the very beginning a sort of subtitle of Hearing Cases Evenly and, and so forth. The major idea here is that if you want to attract men of worth, you don't do this by st stepping forward with money. That's not your first tool here because it's the petty man that's motivated by money. Men of worth is another way to say men who are virtuous and talented. And you attract them through your own virtue. Because a person who is a man of worth will seek a person of virtue to serve. And he is going to want to avoid serving those who are not virtuous. And this goes beyond a matter of pride, because if you work for somebody who is not virtuous, then you lend your name and abilities to a person who is going to use them to pursue injustice. So overall, that's how you attract men of worth. So let's go into this chapter, paragraph by paragraph. Uh, we have a description of the junzi. In this case, we're talking about somebody who is um, being considered to be a minister or scholar official. And we're not talking about the Junza as somebody who is the Lord or the King. So the Junza does not listen to words of praise from those who form parties and cliques. So that kind of eliminates most politicians who simply go with what their party is doing. Those are petty persons. Uh, he's careful about all perverse teachings. He does not grant requests accompanied by goods, money, or gift animals because that is seen as essentially a bribe. So if you uh, ask for the right reasons, you do not have to provide some sort of goods, monies, or gifts, animals outside of a salary that would be appropriate for that position. But some extra kind of gift is something that would not be considered favorably by the Junzi. The next paragraph talks about what attracts such Junzi or gentlemen. Wherever the practice of Li and Yi is perfected, ritual and righteousness, the gentleman will settle there. And so when the practice of ritual reaches to one's person, then one's conduct is cultivated. And when the practice of Yi reaches a state, then there is enlightened government. So you yourself as the Lord or King have to practice Li and Yi, and then you can use that to cultivate the state and that doing those two things will attract people to come to you. So we have on line 45 explicitly, without the Tao, the way and the proper models of people will not come. 
Without the Junzu, the way will not be upheld. Thus, as for the way that the land goes together with people and the way goes together with proper models, these are the fundamental makings of the state and family. So you need the Tao and you need the proper models to attract the right people. You need to honestly employ the worthy. Uh, a lot of people, Chuzza says, the problem with rulers of men is that they do not speak, is not that they don't speak of employing the worthy, but they don't actually do that. So everybody talks about, oh, we're going to get the best people. Uh, and, you know, Trump is, you know, says stuff like that. But do they really obtain the best people? And the answer is no. And there are methods of doing this, and um, one is to use your judgment of these people upon meeting them and pay attention to their reputation. Uh, after the Han Dynasty and progressively afterwards, you have more and more a movement towards using an examination system where people take tests, and this is how you objectively assess their virtue and wisdom. But during Shinzo's time, uh, this is not a thing and he does not advocate such a process here. But it doesn't mean he would be against it either, necessarily. So in line 74, if among the rulers of men there was one who could make bright his virtue, then everyone under heaven would be drawn to him just as cicadas are drawn to bright fire. So if you use your virtue, then you can attract people. Shenzhou reminds us to use teaching first. He says, even when it is accordance with justice, e, to punish or kill people, make no haste in doing so. You only have to say to yourself, I have not been yet able to make matters go smoothly. So you have to first you have to first try to transform the people with E, and then you have to investigate matters and decide cases with objectiveness and harmoniousness and do that in order to guide them. And then after that you can promote some people and demote some others, and then you can after that punish some people and reward others. So there's a whole process to this that's important to respect. Line 94 reminds us that ritual is a measuring tool to see whether proper regulation is being followed. The proper regulation does not mean something like merely environmental regulations. It means these rules that people should abide by in their lives overall. So Proper regulations are therefore laws, but they are a little more detailed than something like statutes, and they regard people's behavior, and you can be very flexible with these rules so that you don't harshly punish people simply because you're breaking it. Regulations are that which is um, you stringently, but when dealing with people, seek to, uh, Shinzo says that we should seek to be kind 
and people should be treated kindly. And so you have both good form and the people will be eased in their lives. So that's the purpose of regulation. You have good form, but you can be forgiving and understanding when it calls for such a response. Line 105 is very important. Uh, the Lord occupies the most exalted position in the state and the father occupies the most exalted position in the family. This is a very important statement because there's a parallel drawn between the father and the Lord. And so the father, like the Lord, is responsible for the well-being of the family and fathers feel the weight of what happens to the family deeply in their hearts, even when it is, strictly speaking, not their own fault. Fathers and lords also defend what's inside against what's outside. So in the, in the role of the Lord, this is regarding foreign policy, but in with regards to fathers, this is regarding the neighborhood. So the next line says, one of the most exalted position is held by one person alone, there'll be order, but if it's held by two people, there will be chaos. In the situation of lords, what happens here is uh, maybe there are two figures from the royal family that are effectively giving orders and competing for power, or simply uh, there's been situations where there's a, a young king and the father's still kind of hanging on, um, and the king is the, the the king is young and he's not quite making all the decisions. So this can be a very difficult situation. Within the family, uh, this happens more casually, but this can happen when um, a son challenges a father and oversteps the bounds of, um, uh, oversteps his bounds and and so the father's leadership is a challenge. Or nowadays, how this might work is when both parents just squabble with each other. And because of that squabbling, the situation is uh, that perhaps children can take advantage of this and say, well, mom said this, and, or well, dad said that, and then they get what they want out of it. That's chaotic. Or simply there's a lot of arguing that's why, traditionally, the father is the one who makes the final decision. And in con traditional Confucian thought, the wife is like the minister. So she can come up with all these great ideas and, and oversee all of this activity. But ultimately, the minister needs to obey the king. And similarly, the wife needs to submit to the husband where the final decision has been made. And feeling the weight of having to make a final decision is not easy. It's very emotionally draining. So this is not light labor there. So that's why that parallel is drawn between lords and fathers. 
the third to last paragraph starting on line 112 talks about the skills for being the proper teacher. And the first thing Shinzo says about that is that being broadly learned is not a part of them. And I think this is very important because uh, especially in a democratic culture where people are always asked their opinions on all sorts of things. And this is a habit we get because we're asked to vote for all sorts of issues and all sorts of candidates and for all sorts of positions. And so if you live in a very democracy-oriented states, such as, for example, California, then you have a litany of items to vote for, anything from who your city council members are all the way up to the governor, and that's not even to speak of for the uh, national level, such as president. You have to vote for all that, you have to vote for all these referendums. So you are always asked to opine on all sorts of measures, proposals, ideas, issues, etc. And there is really not enough time in the world for you to do this and to maintain your own job and to watch out for your family and maintain your home and do your chores. It's really asking for too much. No matter how smart you are, and no matter how many advanced degrees you have obtained, there's not enough time for all of this. And that's why the proper teacher does not need to be broadly learned. In fact, being, being broadly learned simply makes it more likely that you don't have deep understanding. It comes at the expense of deep understanding. And in any case, the broadly learned person should not be teaching other people with that superficial knowledge or level of understanding. So you can be broadly aware, that's fine, but you should have your areas where you are deeply learned and that's the topics that you should be teaching others on. So you can be aware superficially, for example, of general various financial instruments, but that does not mean you should start teaching other people how to invest their money. So what are the four elements if one is dignified, stern, and inspires awe? So that inspiration of awe is the most important aspect there because this is something that motivates students to follow. And it's difficult to inspire awe and also be dignified and stern if you don't have something genuine to teach. There are other people who can inspire awe yet are not dignified. They go and they try to get a following. They used to be called gurus. Now they're called something else. Uh, and the name for these keeps changing, but these are guys who go out there, maybe these days they're on YouTube and they're just blasting opinions about various things, almost yelling into the mic constantly. And so to some people they can inspire awe, but they're not dignified and they're certainly not stern. The stern has to do with the ability to discipline students. So somebody who has all these three things 
is somebody who has something to actually teach you. The next thing here is if at the age of 50 or 60 you've tr proven yourself trustworthy, you can be a teacher. I believe this has to do with the fact that by this age, this is fairly late in life, and you've demonstrated yourself trustworthy and you're offering yourself out to a teacher, probably means you actually do know what you are talking about. Because trustworthy persons, if they're 25 years old, they might be trustworthy, but they have not lived long enough to figure out, oh, they don't actually understand it. So they can be trustworthy and believe falsely that they do understand it. But since they're young, they haven't realized, oh, it doesn't actually work the way that they think it does. The third one here is about reciting and explaining things without violating one's, those things themselves. They can be a teacher. So why would this make sense? Because if you can explain matters, that's one thing. But if you can avoid violating those teachings, it means you have a deeper understanding where you can actually implement that in your own life. So that's a very high standard to reach. A lot of people can profess even the Confucian Tao. A lot of people can explain chemistry from a textbook, but if they cannot actually practice it, whether in their lives or in the lab, then it tells you that there is some shortcomings in their actual understanding. Lastly, if your understanding is subtle and properly ordered, then one can be a teacher. Subtle and properly ordered. You have deep insight. You have the ability to carefully make distinctions among ideas. So if you can do that, even though you might have difficulty in applying them, then still you can be a teacher uh, if your understanding is subtle and properly ordered, then you can be a teacher. So that can also be the case. Now I said that uh, you don't, if you have this level, you don't necessarily um, have to be able to perfectly practice this. Regarding what, what Shunzi is saying here is not very clear because he says there are four elements among the skills for being a proper teacher. Do you need all of them or can you simply have one of these things? It's not altogether clear, but I think by looking at the structure of these statements, if you have this, then you could be a teacher and that then you could be a teacher is repeated four different times. That tells me that Shunzi is saying that each of these four different elements can be by itself a reason to be a teacher. The last idea of this chapter is talking about rewarding people and punishing people. In rewarding people, you don't want to be overly indulgent. You don't want to give good things to the unworthy. And on punishing people, you do not want to end up punishing those who are virtuous. In this day and age, uh, both problems happen. So people are rewarded even though they are doing vile things or of a very poor and vile character. And at the same time, when punishment is meted out, then 
all sorts of innocent and, and even virtuous people are caught up in that punishment. Because governing is not done well these days. Governing is very sloppy. People rely overly on the law and do not believe in assessing character. And so we have these very broad applications and only the wealthy escape punishment. And so Shunzi says, if you have to commit an error, it is preferably it is preferable to be too indulgent, for when harming the good, it is better to, better to benefit the perverse. So you don't want to harm the virtuous, you don't want to harm the good. This is parallel to the idea that it's better to allow innocent, um, to allow a guilty person to be free than to punish the innocent. It's parallel, but it's not the same idea here. Here he's talking about something a little bit different. So last time I talked a little bit about what should you do if you are in a state that is violent, that is not being well run and is chaotic. And I said that you should simply flee. Don't try to be a hero. Don't try to change things. Uh, resorting to action is a very severe um, is a very extreme measure and it's not to say that should never be done. Sometimes violence can be needed, but it's something that one should consider very carefully. So in this chapter, the best thing to do if your state is chaotic, if your state is violent or otherwise oppressive, the best thing to do is to avoid harm especially if you are really do have what it takes to be a king, to be a minister, to be a leader. If you truly have the virtue and wisdom, then that means you, you are a rare and precious person. So don't recklessly go out there and get yourself into trouble. What you should do is to protect yourself, preserve your person, and teach others what the correct way is you should take care of your family you should raise your children well you should go and instruct and share words of wisdom with worthy persons and don't share words of wisdom to those who are undeserving for for those who will not listen properly because you're going to simply at best waste your time and energy and at worst you're going to attract problems to yourself. So that's what people did back in those days. They went ahead and retired. They made themselves lost from public from, from public view. And they simply went ahead and cultivated good relations. And then eventually what'll happen is that these polities cannot self-sustain. They will be wasteful and reckless and destroy what good they, uh, resources that they have. Or there'll be so much infighting, they'll tire themselves out.
So eventually, and it may take more than your lifetime to for this to happen, eventually times will change. There's no such thing as holding on to power forever. And so what is important is that the Tao is, is something that survives these periods because there will be all sorts of pressure to get rid of the Tao. I'm not saying necessarily that they'll try to burn books again, but I'm saying things like, you know, they'll try to uh, instill a way of life where people simply do not learn what is righteous and good anymore. Uh, that they'll, um, they will attack it or portray it as being wrong or even evil and that you should be ashamed to believe in these things even though it's the truth. They will do these things and it's important to survive this so that when things do change generations into the future, there will be enough people who will know, okay, these models are incorrect and that's why the polity, the state fell apart, the society fell apart, and these other models are true. And when the wrong people finally lose, pe <clears throat> finally lose power, and <clears throat> when that happens, naturally there'll be an opportunity for good people to implement good models of leadership, of governing and society and community and that's when flourishing can happen. So uh, I want to be clear that um, I'm not advocating for people to go out there and compel a change. There needs to be a lot of um, work to be done. In the end, ending years of the Qin Dynasty, this is where the, the, the state of Qin and We'll see Shunzi's words on that later. The state of Qin conquers its neighbors, establishes the Qin Empire, and it survives for only two generations of kings. Um, and, and what you find during its existence is that all sorts of people are rebelling and trying to overthrow the dynasty. And um, they don't succeed because there is no fundamental good ground to start off on. But eventually times do change and then there's an opportunity to bring back what is good from the past. So the important thing is, again, you want to preserve it, you want to cultivate yourself, you want to cultivate your family, you want to cultivate uh, good people whom you're friends with, and that will give you plenty to do you don't have to think about going out there and doing something uh, that might get your name into the history books. Don't do that. There's already plenty to do. Confucius, Mencius, Shunzi, uh, they went around teaching and we still have their names today. So you do not have to worry about, uh, if, if, you, if you really do hope to change the future um, and be historically important, you can do that simply by working on your virtue and teaching others.